Well, good morning. I am so glad that you're here. My name is Ben. I'm the lead pastor here, and this is the third week of our Rooted Message Series. And here's what we're doing in this message series. We're looking at the last 2,000 years of church history. Now, that sounds like perhaps a college course, church history, but that's not what we're doing is simply looking at the history. What we're doing is we're asking a question. What has God been doing for 2,000 years that we can learn from today? I mean, the last 2,000 years, as Jesus has been instituting and building his church, is there anything that has happened over those 2,000 years that could still speak to us today? And of course, there is. There's a lot. And so for the last few weeks, we've been looking at uh, the stream of Catholicism. And last week, we looked at the Reformation beginning with Martin Luther and Lutheranism. And today, I'm going to introduce you to this fly gentleman right here on the screen. Look at that. Total hipster, isn't he? Look at that beard. This gentleman, when I showed that, some of you are Presbyterian in the room, you got to shiver down your spine, you know, this is Mar- uh, you know this is John Calvin, and he's your patron saint, but you don't believe in saints, I know. So, uh, John Calvin right here, and John Calvin lived from about 1509 to 1564. Let me tell you a little bit about his life. He was born in France to uh, middle-class parents. The middle class was beginning to emerge in Europe at this time, and they had a little bit of money, not a whole lot. And they decided that John Calvin would be a priest. And so they were going to give him to the Catholic Church. When he was a young child, he uh, began to work and serve in the church. By the time he was 12, he was already identified as among his peers of being incredibly intelligent and really having a heart for the things of God. He was so interested that he cut his hair to look like the priest of the church. And that caught the attention of not just his priest and his family, but a very wealthy family in his town said, this is a smart dude. He's He like gets it. And so they became his financial sponsors for his education as he goes off then later on into college to be a priest. And while he's sitting in a classroom, he's sitting next to a gentleman and both of these guys would change the world at that little school in Paris. John Calvin goes on to become the father of a branch of Christian theology called the Reformed Movement. Presbyterianism kind of falls into that. And this other guy, he goes on and he starts a movement within the Catholic Church called, called the Jesuits. And they were literally in class together at the same time. And here's what they were studying. Now, the word I'm going to tell you that they were studying sounds a little bit negative today in our culture, potentially, at least. They were studying what's called humanism. Humanism. Now, humanism, historically, I don't know all that it means today, but historically, humanism was this idea. What did God originally mean for humans to experience in this world when he created them. And there are a group of people who got together about this time and uh, uh, schools are are expanding all over Europe and there's a real interest in, in intellectual pursuits. And they got together and they began to ask, what is the role of humanity in this world? And so they looked at that from a from a variety of different disciplines. What would that look like in law, for instance? If law were to be fully leveraged to the benefit of humans, that's why it's called humanism, what would law look like? So people began to study law like never before, and the question of justice got a lot of attention. They looked at things like the sciences. And this is the birth of really the the movement of sciences uh, that gives way to all kinds of advancement in medicine and physics. I mean, This is that time period where all that stuff is growing. And the reason it's growing is there are people, very bright people sitting around in rooms talking about what would it look like if we took this natural world and studied it and asked, how could it make the the plight of humanity better? And they were doing the same thing with religion. Can we look at the way religion is done among communities to explore what we might say and think about it, what we might change about it, And in that particular classroom, John Calvin gets up from that experience, radically changed, and the leader of the Jesuit movement, what becomes the Jesuit, gets up radically changed. Humanism was all about that. Well, Calvin got so interested in this study that he decided he would no longer be a priest. And this began to upset his family until they discovered what he wanted to be. He wanted to be a lawyer. And in his journals, he he writes that his dad was pretty happy with that because lawyers make a lot more money than priests do. And so the family was fine with it. They they were like a little upset. They got over it real quick. So now he's studying law. And he's all about justice in the world. And while he's studying law, he learns Latin. He becomes an incredible Latin scholar at a very young age. Not an incredible tutor. And not just Latin. He learns Greek. 
He learns Greek as well. And many of you know that our New Testament was originally written in Greek. And so he becomes a scholar of these languages and he starts devouring the word of God in its original language, understanding all the nuances of the text. And this is very much like a guy that he had incredible um, wealth, he thought very well of. He thought very well of a guy by the name of Martin Luther who also fell in love with God's word. And so the two of them share that and they begin to study it. And in the course of studying to be a lawyer, John Calvin decides, no, the church is where it's at. I believe that the church is where God wants to bring the greatest message, John Calvin says, to the world. And he believed that in the church, through the work of a local church, through the work of what Jesus was doing in the world, that the plight of humanity could be radically changed, could be radically improved. And he was very young when he started all this stuff. But he moves then from France to Germany and he studies Luther at length. And then he moves from there ultimately to Switzerland, to a city called Geneva. And in Geneva, he picks up the task of being a pastor. So he comes to religion through the lenses of being a pastor who has one primary concern. He wants the people in his congregation to experience exactly what God wants for them. He wants the plight of the humans in his congregation to experience all that God has for them. He wants them to understand, for instance, the heart of God, the mind of God. It's a really, really big deal to him. So he starts writing out a book of helping people understand not just the Bible, that was kind of Luther's gift to the world, but John Calvin begins to to write down what does the Bible mean? What does it mean? I don't want you to just understand the stories and have a loose idea. I want you to understand what it means. So he starts writing a book. And when he's 27 years old, in 1536, he gives us the world, the first copy of a book called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. That may sound all academic to you so far. But here's what you have to know about this book. Even people who don't like Calvin, and the thing about Calvin is he's very polarizing. You either love him or you hate him, kind of. But for the folks that even don't like Calvin, here's what they say about this book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion. Outside of the Bible, it's the most important theological book ever written. The most important. And this book, for the first time in clear language, he begins to spell out basic beliefs about the Christian faith in a way that the common people who were reading, the people who were attending his churches, sitting in the seats could begin to understand. So he writes out, here's what we believe, for instance, about God. But not just a statement. He puts supporting scriptures under those statements. And he explains how these passages from Genesis and the Psalms and the Gospels and the later writings of Paul, how they all begin to give us a more full picture of God. Because remember, he believed that if people understood about God, what God wanted them to know, it would radically change their world. So when he was 27 years old, he gives this gift called the Institutes of the Christian Religion. And in his journals, he tells us the heartbeat behind this and what he's trying to get people to understand. And it sets sets the tone for our conversation today. John Calvin's words from his journals, here's what he says. There's not one blade of grass, there is no color in this world that is not intended to make us rejoice. He had a foolish notion, it seems, that if we could understand God, understand what God wants us to know, that it would bring for us joy joy. And in that statement, he's drawing all the way back from his times as a young college student in that room with literally world changers, where they began to discuss what would it be like if the world understood exactly what God wanted them to know and do. If the plight of humanity was raised, Calvin said, if we understood God fully, if we understood ourselves fully, if we understood God's word fully, here would be the result. You would have joy. So he starts out to write to make sure that people can understand that because he wants people to have joy. He's a pastor. And it broke his heart when people would come into church with heads down and they'd leave church beat up and they would feel uh, this weight of trying to conform. And so he began to write out these very clear statements of doctrine and theology. And we're gonna explore three of them today. Three big ideas from the 
massive writings of John Calvin. This book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, when he was 27, was 90 pages long or so. And he began to amend and write and expand on it his entire life. By the time he gets done, it's four big volumes long. And I'm not here to elevate John Calvin to you today. But I want to show you how one man takes the word of God and lifts up the work of Jesus in a way that brought an incredible joy to his congregation. And it lit Europe on fire. Not just Europe. One of the students of John Calvin was a gentleman by the name of John Knox. And he takes the message of John Calvin to Scotland and it bleeds into England through the Puritans. Things like the word of God is powerful and the church has a message. And that message needs to be freely taught. And because of that, these Puritans and these Presbyterians in Scotland move to a new country. You want to guess which one that one is? That's us. And all of them would say it all began really with a gentleman by the name of Calvin who believed if we understood God's word and God's heart, it would produce for us great joy. Great joy. Because everything in this world, Calvin said, all of it is designed to make us rejoice in the greatness of our heavenly father and how awesome he is. Now, when Calvin did this stuff, it wasn't like he had an easy life. He was in incredible pain. He was not only a hipster, he was also somewhat of an academic nerd. Kind of fit the, the profile exactly. He wasn't cool and, you know, hip in the sense that people thought he was uh, attractive and, and were drawn to him. They were drawn to his mind and his ideas. But his path was difficult. When he wrote, he was almost always in constant pain. Here are some of the things that come out in his writings. And I want you to understand that as we go through this list, here's just a pastor with a burning heart to make people understand God's heart so that they could have joy. But while he does it, here's what he's struggling. Constant headaches. I mean, just constant headaches. He often writes, you know, my head is hurting again. And he didn't mean in a metaphoric sense. He literally struggled. He couldn't sleep. He had insomnia, shortness of breath. He had advanced tuberculosis, coughing fits, hemorrhages, fevers, colitis, kidney stones, hemorrhoids, bleeding from the stomach, fever, muscle, cramps, nephritis, and gout. He was a mess. And in that situation, it was difficult for him to get up every day. But seven times a week, he would go to the pulpit in Geneva, Switzerland. Seven times a week, he would preach for an hour, never repeating the same sermon. And he would preach for an hour and he would plead with people, understand God's heart for you. Because if you understand God's heart, if you know his mind, if you can get behind, if you can know your heavenly father, it will bring for you great joy, real joy, lasting joy. So year after year, month after month, week after week, he would just proclaim these truths and he would write down what was said. And so we have from Calvin the Institutes of the Christian Religion and we have a commentary of almost every book in the Bible where he would comment on what the passage said and what it would mean for people that were trying to understand the mind of God. He's an incredible, incredibly smart, articulate man. And he literally changed the world. There's a lot we could say about him, but what we're gonna do is we're gonna focus on a couple of three specific doctrines or theology points that I think still speak for us today. And I'm gonna use my language. I'll introduce you to... Calvin's in just a moment, but let me use my language to begin with. Here's our first big point. Before we throw it up, I have to tell you that this point doesn't get a lot of airtime in churches today. I don't think it gets enough airtime, and I think I know why. So we're going to explore it slowly, and you may feel the temperature in the room rise just a little bit for you as we do it. But I want you to understand there's only one reason we're talking about it, and it's built on the idea that John Calvin had, which is that if you understand the mind of God on any subject and you embrace it as true, it actually produces for you joy. So the whole point of our conversation today is that your joy might be made complete. That we wouldn't be those kinds of Christians who walk around with a somber face, disconnected from our world because we're beaten down but we would energetically and enthusiastically embrace the truth of God. So here's our first point. Big, big deal to Calvin in his writings. Here it is. 
the sin is a big deal. Now, I put the definitive article, the, in front of sin for a reason. Because he's not talking about little things. He's saying this massive concept of sin is a really big deal. It's a big deal. Now, I'm going to read for you um, some of Calvin's words. But first, I just want to appeal to your logic for a second. See, everybody in this room knows that there's something wrong with the human condition. You know it. I know it. It's just true. You know it when you watch the news at night. You know it when you think about your own experience. You've both sinned and have been sinned against. You know there's something wrong. America knows there's something wrong. That's why you can go to a bookstore if you can still find one, a Barnes & Noble or uh, something like that. And you can go into those bookstores and you'll see that the largest section in most bookstores is a section of books called the self-help section. A lot of good stuff in those bookshelves. But this is the North American way of saying, something's busted inside of you. Let me tell you how to fix it. Let me give you some advice. So I want to encourage you, go down to your bookstore at some point if you want. Grab, you know, grab a coffee and peruse the self-help section. When you do, you're going to find books on being physically stronger, more fit. The idea here is that if you get a little more flexible, a little sexier, a little stronger, then your life's going to be whole. You're not going to struggle internally anymore because once you get it together physically, then that thing inside of you that longs for something more will be satisfied. There's a lot of good stuff in there. I should read a book like this or two. Okay, you're not supposed to laugh that hard. You give a guy a complex up here, all right? But the idea is that you'll, be, you'll feel complete, right? Or you keep walking and you'll see a a section of of books on money. And the idea here is that if you'll just get money right, have enough, manage it well, then your sense of security, that, you know, this fear that you're not going to be okay, that's going to be satisfied. And money's the path to do that. Or you can go to a section. I call it the Oprah section. It's not called that in your books, right? The bookstore. But here's the idea here is that what we really need in this world is authenticity and wholeness. So you can read these books and they'll tell you, you need authenticity and wholeness. Now, they won't tell you how to get it. They'll just remind you, you need authenticity and wholeness. And as you read it, you'll go, I need authenticity and wholeness, right? And so you'll find this and everybody's kind of nodding their head. Yes, we need that. Then there's a whole section of books called the self-esteem books. And here's how these books go. That you're good enough, smart enough, pretty enough, and by goodness, people should like you. And you're a little too hard on yourself, so lighten up. Lighten up. Think better about yourself. And if you'll think better about yourself, you're going to have a better life. Now, if Calvin or Luther or John Wesley that we're going to talk about next week were to walk into a bookstore and see these books, they might find some helpful stuff. But by and large, here's what they would say. Those books don't deal with the root problem. While they have their place, the root problem really is sin. And we all know there's something wrong, and we all are very good about constructing an answer to the problem that we identify. But the answers we construct don't deal with the root problems, because the root problem is sin. And so for Calvin, here's what he would say. That if you deal with sin, if you understand the heart of God on sin, what will happen is joy will come to you when you quit pretending to be strong and instead admit your total dependence on him. So John Calvin, who was very smart, he wrote these words. There's no worse screen to block out the spirit than confidence in our own intelligence. He's not saying don't be smart. This was a genius man. And in his name and in his movement, there are incredibly smart people. For instance, Mr. Rogers of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood loved and read Calvin so much that he became a Presbyterian pastor. And he would give little sermons to little kids. And somebody said to him, you know what? We should get that message outside the church because I think it helps some people. And so he took what was basic Christian theology and began to talk to people about the worth that God saw in people. And he stripped some of the religious language out 
And kids all over America tuned in almost daily to get a word of encouragement from Mr. Rogers. Reverend Aaron Burr, you don't know him, but you know what he did. He founded a school called Princeton University. He wanted people to understand God's word, and he sent out Presbyterian ministers all over America, proclaiming a message that sin is a big deal. It's a big deal. And we need to understand God's heart on the matter, because if we do, it will ultimately lead us to joy. The the Dutch painter Rembrandt was a follower of Calvin. Calvin took Martin Luther's ideas about the word of God being made available. And he said, I don't just want the word of God. I want people to understand it. And then Rembrandt began to paint a lot of hundreds of Bible scenes so that people could actually visualize what it was like. And Rembrandt did something quite interesting. Art scholars call it syncretism, but he painted the characters in the Bible story, but used the costumes of the times in which he lived. So that the people in the Bible stories looked like the people who were looking at the paintings. They didn't look like the people of the Bible stories. And people could look at these stories and their minds were stretched about the greatness and the awesomeness of God. Perhaps today the most famous Presbyterian or follower of Calvin is a gentleman I like to call Mr. Hare, Donald Trump, just a few days ago. Now I bring that up to say, we all have strange and odd cousins. It's okay. Every one of these streams of the Christian faith, and I like a lot that Donald Trump says. I certainly don't like everything, and we don't do politics here in this place, but what you'll find in every stream of this Christian faith that we talk about is a group of people who don't always, you know, fit our understanding of what they should look like. But the one thing we all have in common is we know that there's a problem. I saw this problem in my kids. You know, Jill and I are very good parents. I really need you to believe that. At least that's what we think. And um, we had, I remember having a couple of kids sitting on the floor playing with toys. And one of my sons had a toy. One of the other sons wanted it. So he leans over, grabs the toy, a little skirmish. And next thing I know, one kid is walloping upon the other. Now, who taught my kids to do that? Who taught my kids, if you want something, just take it because you pretty much deserve it. I remember coming home from a store once and we're unpacking all the stuff and it's all laying on the counter. And then there's an item on the counter I don't remember buying. And I say, who... Who got this? I look at the receipt. It's not on there. One of my kids says, oh, I just wanted it, so I took it. Yeah. And I'm like, all right, who taught my kid how to steal? Right? Don't blame my kid. My kids are that way because they play with your kids. That's why (laughs) my kids are messed up. You know, by the time you were five, you were probably lying. That's just the way it rolls. Where did this come from? Calvin says it's because of sin. There's something wrong with the with the human condition, and you can get even the most pagan person in the room who doesn't believe in God at all and say to them, is there a problem with humanity? They'd say yes, and then they'd provide a solution. It's government. It's education. It's, you know, social justice. It's, it's a, uh, changing the economic system. All of that will change the basic problem of humanity. You can find religious people and put them in a room and say, is there a problem with humanity? And they'll say yes. And so what we need people to do is not do the sins mentioned in the Bible. Drunkenness is bad. Don't be drunk. Don't, you know, touch somebody you're not married with. We all have ideas. But when John Calvin looked at the human condition and began to think about sin, not just in one or two places in the Bible, but throughout what the Bible said, here was his idea. That humanity is totally depraved. Totally depraved. And by that, he doesn't mean that you can't do any good at all. Here's what he means. It's a a nuanced thing. What he means is the good you could do isn't good enough to deal with the sin problem. It's not. God doesn't have scales. You do some good, you do some bad. As long as the good outweighs the bad, you're fine. That doesn't work, Calvin said. And he brings incredible attention to this biblical value that sin is a very big deal to God. And everybody's guilty of it. The idea here is is that when you look, for instance, at the Bible in the book of Romans, the book of Romans was very important to John Calvin. It was because he read a lot of Martin Luther. And the biblical book of Romans was important to Luther. Next week, we're going to read about John Wesley, who starts the Methodist movement. And guess which book of the Bible was his go-to book? Romans. Maybe you need to read Romans. Because major world changers were changed as they took the words of those 
writings from St. Paul as St. Paul was moved up on by the Holy Spirit very seriously. Calvin read Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3. And here's what he discovered. That in Romans chapter 1, the Bible reveals this, that humanity's problem causes them to choose creation over the creator. Most of people, Calvin would say, don't want God. They want the stuff God brings. God brings stuff. I want the stuff bringer in my life. If I can get the stuff without the bringer of the stuff, even better. We have a tendency, Calvin said, to put creation over the creator. But that's not all. That's not the only way sin manifests in our life. Sin manifests this way, that we tend to choose the lies over the truth. Lies over the truth. That when you read Romans chapter 1 and 2, the Bible says that in creation, we can view and know some things about God. But rather than that attracting us to God, it attracts us to creation. When God has revealed to us through the prophets, through the Bible, certain truths, rather than at us attracting us to the God behind the Bible, we're attracted to various ideas independent of the one who brought the idea. Calvin said another way that sin manifests itself, illustrating that we're totally depraved, our own efforts won't do it, is, is that we'll often choose our own efforts over God's efforts for us. The idea here is that we have a sinful heart so that even if you could sell everything and give it to the poor, that alone would not be enough to tip the scales to deal with your sin problem. Let me paint it for you just a little more directly. Let's imagine a scenario where your parents wanted you to be holy and right. So your mom gave birth to you in a baptismal pool so that the first experience in this world for you would be to be surrounded by holy water. It'd be a little strange, but just go with me. It's a metaphor, all right? And then let's say the, uh, you know, the doctor and the nurse and the, there, the, you know, the doula there helping you give, give birth, uh, they pick you up and then they wash you with anointing oil so that your second experience is like with holy stuff. And as they're washing you, they discover you have a birthmark. And interestingly enough, it's the sign of the cross right in the middle of your forehead. Even if like all that were to happen and you had the greatest, most auspicious and holy experience, that would not be enough to deal with the sin problem because it's a really, really big deal. We look at things like people who murder, what happened on 9-11, crazy wars, people who abuse kids, and we all can see evil. But Calvin says, yeah, that's evil, but there is at work in us, and it's an unpopular message. There is at work in us a darkness, a brokenness. We see it in others. It's hard to see in ourselves, but for every person in the room, if you're honest, you know that this sin problem has impacted you. One of the things that makes it hard to talk about sin is that even in a lot of Christian churches, one of its primary subjects has fallen on hard times. And so we go to church to get a kick up, a lift up. That's not bad. But for Calvin, he says, the problem is not that we preach on sin too much and it brings people down, is that we preach on sin in such a way that it doesn't reveal what's really going on. And it doesn't reveal the heart of our heavenly father. And if you can understand the truth of God's word, it would actually bring for us joy. Because while sin is a really, really big deal, there is stuff that is bigger. Calvin said it this way. Every one of us, even from his mother's womb, is a master, a craftsman of idols that we will build for ourselves a solution independent from God. And he didn't make this up. He's reading again from the book of Romans, chapter three, verse 20 through 23. Here's what the Bible says. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we've become conscious of our sin. What's the point then of the rules in the Bible? The rules prove to us that the rules don't deal with our sin problem. The rules remind us we're rule breakers. The rules remind us of the sin we have. The rules are then a harsh schoolmaster. So Paul continues to write, but now apart from the law, 
the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This right being, this righteousness, this right way of thinking, this right way of being is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile, his primary readers, Jews and non-Jews. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is not just in Romans. Abraham embraced the idea that he was a sinner. He writes in Genesis 18, he says, I am but dust and ashes. You keep reading Moses. Who am I that you should choose me? I'm not worthy. David, in the Old Testament, David and Goliath fame, he writes, God, I am such a mess that I'm afraid you're gonna take your spirit away from me. I don't deserve any of the goodness. And later on, when David gives a massive offering in the church collection plate, he says, I don't feel worthy to even give this stuff. This is just your goodness to me. And in none of these places does God come to these people of faith and say, let me tell you what you need to do. Quit being so hard on yourself. Quit talking about yourself that way. No, they wrote words like, I'm a worm. And God says, yes, you are. You're a worm. Now, I see why that's not popular. But there's another side of the thing that because while sin, the sin problem is huge, there's something bigger. And it's the grace of God. Point number two for Calvin. Total depravity, but point number two. Grace is is a bigger deal. Sin is a big deal, but grace is a bigger deal. And for Calvin, he wants people to experience and know God's heart on these realities of life. So he makes it clear to the point of being uncomfortable. But if you hang with me for a moment, I think you'll see how he gets to joy. He says that joy comes when we receive what by his grace we could never earn. Our joy comes when we deal with the sin problem by receiving from God what we could never earn on our own. In the Bible, Calvin read the words of Isaiah. Woe is me, Isaiah writes, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And then he sees the angel, if you read Isaiah chapter six, clean Isaiah's lips, declaring, yeah, you're right. You are unclean. In the New Testament, the centurion comes to Jesus and says, I have no right for you to ask, to ask you to come heal my daughter. And Jesus says, you're right. You have no right. You bring me nothing. But in each of these and in our lives as well, the source of joy does not become from wallowing in the fact that we're worms or from believing a lie that says, you're not a worm, you're really a butterfly in disguise. Give it enough time, put enough effort into it, and then you'll be able to see just how awesome you are. Neither one of those is the source. The source comes from, yes, you're a worm, but I'm the God of worms. And the God of worms brings grace to worms. For Luther, he looked at his congregation and he would say to them, or for Calvin, he would say to them, here's the deal. It's exhausting to pretend you have it all together. So stop. Stop pretending you have it all together. This is actually bringing you pain. It's why you're so downcast. You can never live up to it. You lay in bed and you know deep down you're a liar. And you're afraid your lies are about to be exposed. So you create a world of busyness so that you're not exposed. But this pastor who loved people said, let me give you a better way. Let's acknowledge your sin is big, but instead, let's acknowledge that God's grace is bigger. So that when Jesus comes to the crowds and he begins to preach to them, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who are persecuted, happy are the ones who are keenly aware of their inadequacies. What he's giving them is the freedom to admit that their sin is a big deal. And this begins to open the door to joy. It's the person that hears somebody say to her, you're a hypocrite. Now, see, it's one of two choices. You're a hypocrite, bad side down, right? The weight, you're a hypocrite. Two choices. She can either start listing off all the good things she's done to prove she's not a hypocrite. 
you, you don't do marriage well. Bad side down. You can start listing off all the things that prove you do marriage well and try to bring those things back into equilibrium. That's passe. By works. Calvin says, that will bring you misery. Stop doing that. Instead, admit your sin is great. Yeah. I'm a hypocrite. To my shame. But don't stop there, worms, he would say. Embrace the fact that the grace of God is bigger than that. Yes, I'm a hypocrite. And isn't it amazing that while I acted in ways I know better than to act, while I held you to a standard I didn't live to, isn't it amazing that while I'm doing that very thing, God loved me anyway? Now, now we have a pathway to joy. This is Calvin's message to the world. Now, there are people who have out-Calvined Calvin, and they've made it very difficult sometimes to understand what he's done, and there's a certain meanness and austerity sometimes that comes with the followers of Calvin, but not for Calvin. He wanted people to know the reason you take sin so seriously, because every bit of sin you take seriously opens the door for you to receive grace seriously. Your sin actually enables you. Yes, I'm a hypocrite, and Jesus has loved me anyway. And now it points away from you and your effort and it frees you to declare the greatness and the awesomeness of God. You're bitter. You're angry. You're harboring this in your heart. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. That's bondage. It's freedom and joy comes and you go, you're right. I am. I'm bitter. It hurt. I'm mad. I can't get over it. And I can't believe God loves me anyway. I mean, his word says that I have to forgive to be forgiven. And here I am not forgiving, and he still loves me. Even with warnings like that, Calvin says, there's your joy. Your joy is not in pretending your sin's not a big deal. Your joy is not in comparing yourself to somebody else so that you can feel better about you. Your joy is not in your performance. Try it. It will leave you miserable. Your joy is found in the fact that your sin is big, but the grace of God is bigger. You're struggling with lust. Yes. Yes, I am. And I'm going to counseling to deal with some root issues there. But at the end of the day, in this journey, God's love and grace has been my ever-present help. Not... Yeah, I am, but all my buddies are too, and I'm not as bad as they are, and I only do a little bit, and besides, she made me very mad. See, that's minimizing sin. There's the source of problem, minimizing sin. Because when you minimize sin, you don't need the grace of God, and without the grace of God, there is no joy. This is why Christians go to self-help churches, because they feel good in the moment. But it's not the gospel. And Calvin is the apostle of gospel, making it crystal clear that your joy depends completely on your ability to be honest, that you are in fact, and I am a sinner before God. And it's a pitiful state. And I'm powerless to change it by myself. And that's exactly why Christ came to me. So Calvin read Ephesians chapter 2 and wrote an incredible commentary on it from which I'm drawing a lot of what we're talking about. Let me read for you Ephesians 2 and see if you can't hear the awesomeness of the grace of God when compared to our sin. As for you, you and me, we were dead in our transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. But... Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. If you can do it on your own, you don't need God's gift. Not by works. There's the joy. You can lay your striving down. Because if you could do it by yourself, if you think you can, your striving would be useless. This is where we raise an altar and we come then to God by his grace. And then verse 10. 
For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The good works come, but let's put them in context. I'm a sinner because I am. God's grace is awesome. That allows me to be humble and honest and no facade. Listen, you can stop pretending you got it all together. You can be real. In fact, realness is the only path to the joy that God has for you. And when you do it, you can know that you didn't do anything, but by his grace, he covers your sin. Because grace is greater than sin. That's why we call it amazing. Grace is greater. But in order for the grace to be amazing in your life, you probably need it. But if you're always excusing in a way, then you don't need grace. You just need a better response to the person that's accusing you. Or to your own mind when it tells you, come on. Come on, you know it's a big deal. But grace allows you to say, God, thank you. I don't have to hide. So why do I come to the cross? I come because of your grace. You know the good thing for church people who buy into grace? The ground at the cross is level. So you're sitting next to an incredibly profound sinner. That's all right. So is he or she. They're looking at you. It's all right. We're all there doesn't mean I'm better. In fact, when you read the biblical writers, it's almost as if they go out of the way to explain how bad they are. And as they do, joy comes flooding in. So where do the works line up? The idea here is, is that once we experience God's grace, then God begins to write in our lives a story filled with good works. The biblical word here for workmanship is poema in Greek. It means poem. God is writing poetry in your life. That as a recipient of grace, somebody who needed grace, God didn't just give it to you as an add-on. You needed it. And because you needed it, he gave it to you. Not by anything you did, but because he's good. Now then, he's writing poetry in your life. So he calls you to good works. And in the grace and the cooperation with that grace, God is doing something quite powerful in your life. You're allowing him to rewrite your story. I'm still a sinner. But now I'm saved by grace. I still blow it. But God is my ever-present help in a time of trouble. I still struggle. I long for the person who stands up and gives the testimony I like to hear. You know the testimony. Some of you grew up this way. Most of them go like this. I used to be bad, real bad. I drank all the time, smoked, went to movies, danced. Chew tobacco, fill in your favorite sins. I don't care. But one day I woke up. Now, I don't struggle with that stuff anymore. In fact, there's the way at least I heard it. Jesus Christ himself shows up in my room every morning and teaches me exactly what to do every day. And if you'll just follow him, you can have an experience of perfection just like mine. Now, nobody ever said that. That's just what I heard. But that's not the gospel. Here's, here's the testimonies I long for. In small group, yeah. That thing we talked about last week, it's not over. But I'm seeing God more in the middle of it. And I know that by his grace, with his strength, he's designing a plan for me. He's working through it. We're just not through it yet. And that brings us to the last major point from Gavin. While sin is a big deal, grace is a bigger deal. The biggest deal of all is God. Total depravity, sin's a big deal. Irresistible grace comes flooding in. Grace is a bigger deal. But the biggest deal of all is the sovereignty of God. And while dealing with sin and grace brings joy, opens the door for joy, quit pretending. The sovereignty of God brings peace. So every single detail of your life is under the control of God and he will work it for your good. So you rely on, for instance, the idea that Calvin wrote that joy comes when we trust him fully because he is, here's the key word, sovereign. Because he's all the way in control, I can, contr- I can trust him to be in control. So that God then becomes the biggest deal of all. And so even the pain in my life, God will, because he's sovereign, he can orchestrate it for my good. Maybe I don't feel good right now. 
But I trust his sovereignty that he's orchestrating it for my good. And while it's painful, I can actually close my eyes tonight and sleep because I trust his character. Remember, Calvin wanted people to know God through the pages of his word. He wanted them to understand that if God is all he says in the Bible, then he's in control of everything. And this actually gives for us an open door to peace. And the truth is, as a pastor today, I realize there are a lot of followers of Jesus who don't have joy or peace. I get it. I live there. But when I begin investigating investigating it, it's usually because rather than dealing with my brokenness, my inadequacies, through the lenses of the grace of God, I try harder, I do more. There's a place for doing. It just doesn't earn you anything with God. It doesn't like you better. You can make yourself feel better for a while until the house of cards comes crashing down and you realize at the end of it, you are like the biblical writers said of themselves. And I don't mean this in a derogatory way. It just is what it is. We are all worms. Some of the old hymns used to describe us this way. For such a worm as I. And the new writers didn't like it. So they changed it to sinners such as I. I get why we do that. But the moment you back away from your sin, you close the door to the joy of grace. What if, what if, what if, in the right time and in the right place, you started telling the truth about your sin? What if in the right place, you had a group of people around you saying, we hear you, but God's grace is bigger than that. And what if the next time you're talking about the burden that you're under, and I bet they're real, I'm not minimizing them. And you're describing the circumstances under which you're feeling incredible pressure. Somebody around you, maybe God's word himself, or maybe the Holy Spirit in his whispers as you pray would remind you, yes, that's real, but let me tell you something bigger than that. God is greater than that thing. And he is actually in control of it all. And he, because it's his character, is working it for your good. And you may not see it yet. But by the end, his will will be accomplished. That's what it means to say he is sovereign. And you now can trust him. Oh, what joy. What peace. If we could do what Calvin wanted all of his people in his congregation do. See God more. See ourselves fully. See our God fully. See our sin fully. Embrace grace fully. Trust him fully. That's why when you walk under the doors coming in this church, it says, real love now. We don't mean here's three more steps to being a better Christian. Although on occasion, we'll share with you some steps to make prayer easier or community better or money better because there's wisdom in God's word for that. What we mean, though, is that you can come as you are. Where do we get that idea? From the pages of God's word and, incre- and through incredibly powerful writing of pastors and theologians like John Calvin. I want this church to be full of people who have joy. I want this church to be full of people who can put their heads down at night, trusting in the sovereignty of God. I don't want us to excuse away our problems and do spiritual math. I want us to deal with the root and to accept Jesus as the once and for all finisher of our faith. And I think in that, it's incredibly attractive to, a, to the world. And I think all the lies, try harder, do better, put yourself against somebody else, find somebody a little less than you so you can feel better about yourself, begin to give way. Those shadows fall away and the light of Christ begins to come. So it's more than odd t-shirts that you wear that have Christian slogans and what movies you'd see and don't see and what bumper sticker you have on the back of your car, although the Real Love Now bumper sticker Jesus loves that. If he were driving a car, he'd have one. But it's more than all of that. It's that sin is a big deal, but grace is bigger. Some of you know it. And it is sweet, isn't it? You know the freedom that comes when you say, yep, that's me. Pegged. You nailed it. You read my mail. Pegged. But God has loved me anyway. So why don't you do this? Why don't you grab out your connect cards? Let's take a few steps together as a congregation. Maybe you can tell I'm a big fan of Calvin. I don't like everything he said all the way, but I'm a big fan because in it, I read about myself. 
And I read about a church full of people that I love. That God is pretty awesome. And a bigger picture of him changes everything. Here's one way I'd like for it to change for some of us in the room right now. I want to give you an opportunity to put your faith and trust in this God that I've been talking about. To admit that you're a sinner. You don't need a life coach. You need a savior. So next step A says, today I'm making Jesus my savior and Lord. Savior and Lord are just biblical words. Savior means forgiver. I can't fix it myself. And Lord means he's the leader of my life. If you'd like to do that, I'd ask you to take that pen and put a check mark right there. When the offering buckets come by at the end of our service, you put that card in there and we'll communicate with you. That check mark doesn't save you. We're just acknowledging what God's doing. We want to tell you what it means to be a child of God, fully honest with your sin and fully covered by his grace. What a beautiful picture. Oh, if a church could just be real, huh? Or how about next step B? Today, I'm choosing to be baptized. I'm going to go public with my faith. We have one coming up in December. It's going to be beautiful. As we celebrate the fact that every person going under the water, not one of them has it all together. But we're acknowledging they are covered in grace like the water covers their bodies. They're covered. They put their trust in Jesus. Here's a prayer I'm praying each morning this week at Next Step C. If you check it, I'll send it to you. You can join me every morning. Sorry, I'm beginning my day. God, help me to see you more fully today. Help me to see you more fully. I want to see myself. I want to see my problems. I want to see other people, but help me to see you. I want to see you. Next step, D says, some of you, about over 100 of you have already said you're going to do this, but I'm going to throw it out one more time. We're going to offer a 90-minute lecture on church history, Monday, November 16th, 7 p.m., right here in this building. If you check it, we'll send it to you. By checking that box, we're just going to get a reminder. We're offering child care as well. All the details in the email follow-up. And the next step, E, we're about to go into a season of Advent where we're going to celebrate the fact that Jesus came to the world. And in many ways, he's still coming. He's still making himself known. And Christmas time around here is a big deal for us. And we want to get our hearts spiritually ready. Here's what I'm asking from you. Would you pray for this staff, for your pastor, for this leadership team as we prepare for the Christmas season and all that God wants to do as he makes himself known to people in new ways over this Christmas season? If you'll check that box, I'll tell you how to help pray for us, all right? Let's pray right now. Father, thank you. Thank you for being an awesome God. Thank you for bringing us freedom that comes from being able to tell the truth about us. No more facades. No more lying to ourselves. No more pretense. No more propping up an image. No more masks. God, we can be real. Thank you, Lord, that even though our sin is big, your grace is bigger. Grace that is greater than all our sin. We celebrate that today, Lord. God, I pray that by your spirit, you'd wash that truth over every redeemed child of God in this room. That it is gone. That there's a new day. New beginnings in Christ. Lord, I join with those that are declaring, Jesus, wash away my sins. Cover me by your blood. I trust you and your death and resurrection to satisfy all that needs to be done for me to have a relationship with God. And Lord, as we ramp up for this Christmas season, I pray, God, that you would prepare our hearts as your church for all that you want to do in us and through us. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus, the strong and holy Son of God. Amen. Amen.